Well, good morning, church. I am thankful to be with you this morning, even though it is not in the way that I would have expected. Uh, by now, a lot of you have probably heard that my wife tested positive for COVID. At the time of filming this, I do not have COVID. Uh, but just to make sure that we're able to have the word preached this morning, we decided the best way to go forward would be to have me on the video screen. And so here I am. And uh, I hope that this is still going to be a blessing uh, to you and to our church this morning. And we're going to pray right now that uh, the Word would do its work uh, because it is just as powerful whether uh, I am there in person uh, preaching it or I am doing it uh, like we did you know, a year and a half ago during the beginning of the pandemic, uh, me preaching to uh, a camera. So uh, here we are. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together right now. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I thank you for the technology this morning uh, to be able to uh, still have the word preached despite these uh, unusual circumstances. I thank you, God, for the truth of the word, and I pray that we would be challenged to count the cost of being your disciples, uh, to count the cost of following you, and that we would really think about, Lord, uh, the commitment that we have as Christians uh, who are uh, your disciples, your followers. And uh, this morning, I pray we would leave more committed to uh, being disciples of Christ than ever, Lord. Um, we pray that you would pull our allegiance away from self and away from stuff and away from the world and that you would pull our allegiance to yourself, that we would be totally devoted to you because of how you uh, speak to us through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, well, uh, I don't know if you all like puzzles or not. Some people really love to put them together. Some people can really care less. But I was doing some research on them. Uh, I wanted to know what is the largest puzzle that you can go out there and buy. And I found out uh, the answer. The internet is always good to provide us with uh, answers to questions like, what is the biggest puzzle you can buy? So the biggest puzzle I could find on the internet uh, is a puzzle uh, that has 51,300 pieces. They call it the world's largest puzzle, and it was the biggest one that I could find. Um, it is 28.5 feet by 6.25 feet, and it can be yours for just $600. Um, you know, if you were to get a puzzle like that, okay, you don't start working on it without counting the cost, right? You've got to check those numbers. You've got to know how many pieces are there. You want to know how long it's going to take you to put it together. And by the way, in case you're wondering, uh, it takes an average of 20 hours for a person to put together a 1,000-piece puzzle. That means this puzzle would take you about 1,000 hours to put together. You've got to count that cost before you invest. For any gamers in our congregation, if you're going to play a video game, you want to know how long is the game. There's a big difference between a 200-hour game and a 20-hour game. And so you want to count the cost before you jump into it. And counting the cost is the subject of our passage this morning in Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open there. Jesus has great crowds following him in this passage, and in that crowd, you probably have varying ranges of commitment levels. There's the inner circle 
who are most committed to him. And then you have people who are probably just hanging around because they're interested to see what all the fuss is about and they would like to see some more miracles, maybe be the recipients of some of those uh, miraculous displays of God's power through his son. And then you have people who just want to catch Jesus in a trap and try to harm him. And we've seen plenty of that from the Pharisees and the scribes uh, throughout the chapters of Luke that we have already studied. And so in this passage, he's going to turn to these great throngs of people that are following him, and he's going to challenge them. And he's going to take um, the bar and put it up here and say, if you want to follow me, this is the bar. It's a high level of commitment to be my disciple. And so we're going to work through this passage. We have three action points for discipleship this morning. And then we're going to wrap up by looking at three isms. And I'll explain what those are when we get there. Uh, that this passage just absolutely destroys. Okay, so uh, Luke 14, let's start at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we start with the first of our three action points for discipleship. Uh, I was tempted to call them prerequisites, but I don't want to give the idea that we need to get ourselves together before we start following Jesus, before we can be a disciple of Christ. If that were the case, we would never follow Jesus. We would never be his disciple. We would never find our own way out of our lostness and out of our brokenness. But I do think we see three action points here if we are going to be his disciples. And so here's number one. Cast off your former priorities. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you must cast off your former priorities. And so as Jesus challenges the crowd here to a high level of discipleship, if they are to follow him, he says there are three things that would prohibit someone from being his disciple. That they do not hate their own father, their mother, their wife, their children, their brothers, their sisters, as well as their own life. We see that in verse 26, that they will not bear their own cross. We see that in verse 27, and that they will not renounce all that they have. We see that in verse 33. And so you can see why I said this is a high bar for discipleship. It's a high level of commitment for discipleship. This is not weekend religion that's being offered by Jesus here. And so let's work through each of these because they all have to do with this first action point of casting off your former priorities. And so first of all, we have this business of hating your own family, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your siblings. And to top it all off, he says, even your own life. 
And so what is Jesus saying here? I had an ethics professor at VCU where I got my undergrad who looked at a classroom full of students, probably about 100 to 125 students in uh, stadium-style seating in this big classroom, and he looked at them with a straight face, and he said that this verse, Luke 14, verse 26, proves that Jesus is actually anti-family. Okay, now that's just a nonsense. Uh, that's a dumb statement. Okay, uh, the world is dumber for having been exposed to a statement like that. That's silly talk. Um, it's lazy talk, right? You took no effort to actually study the scriptures. To accuse Jesus of something like that, you would have to ignore the fact that he's using hyperbole here. Hyperbole is an exaggerated statement that you use to make a point. And the statement is not meant to be taken literally, but the point that is made is to be taken literally. So what is the point? Is Jesus anti-family? Does he really want you to hate your own family members the way that you hate things in this world that are evil? Well, of course not. There's a host of Bible verses that show that God doesn't just love the family, but that the family was his idea. Right? Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right? Family is often called an institution. Well, this is where God instituted it in Genesis 2. He instituted this concept of leaving your mom and your dad to start a new family. And then throughout the scripture, we see instructions about the family. Honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments, right? And, and famously, it's uh, the first um, commandment that comes with a promise. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Wives, love your husbands. Titus 2, verse 4. Parents, you know, don't provoke your children to anger. Love your children. That's what we see in Ephesians 6. And so Jesus is not going to contradict all of Scripture and say you should actually hate your family. Instead, he's using this hyperbolic statement and calling his followers to have so much love for him that their love for anything else, even family, would comparatively look like hate. And so this is a call then for extreme devotion to Christ. It's similar to the language we see in Genesis 29, verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Okay, and then in Genesis 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, did Jacob really hate Leah? Or was his devotion to Rachel so great that it looked like hate when you compared it to his feelings for Leah? Right? It's the latter. And you can extend what Jesus is saying here beyond family to any relationships. He's just using family as his example because there's nothing closer than immediate family, right? It's the pinnacle of human relationship. But there can be no friend, no associate, no one who supersedes Jesus when it comes to our love and when it comes to our devotion. Secondly, Jesus says you must hate your own life. Be willing to bear the cross that the Lord gives you in order to be his disciple. We see this in verses 26 and 27. 
So is Jesus saying that we must be self-loathing and that we must die a martyr's death in order to be a Christian? Is this what he's saying? That we must die on a physical cross just like him in order to be his follower? Um, again, he's using hyperbole, uh, right? He's making a statement that's not meant to be taken literally, but the point that he's making with the statement is to be taken literally. And here is the point. When he said, hate your father and mother, he was calling for absolute allegiance over all human relationships, right? Here he is calling for allegiance to him over allegiance to your own self. This is a call to self-denial, to no longer answer the commands of your own flesh, but to uh, answer to the will of God. There probably hasn't been a better book written on the subject of discipleship than The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when he comments on Jesus's words here and this concept of self-denial, he says that we need to say the same thing to ourselves that Peter said when he denied Christ. Okay, so it's really interesting the way he flips this. So Luke 22, verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied it, right? Saying, Woman, I do not know him. And what Bonhoeffer is saying is that when our flesh is tempting us to love ourselves over Christ, we need to say, I do not know this man. As believers, we know Jesus now. We no longer know the old man of flesh, right? Um, who we were before Christ. He is dead and he is buried, right? He is a stranger to us. And so we deny relationship with the old man. We say we do not know this man and we claim relationship with Christ. This is where our allegiance lies. And Jesus brings up the cross because for him, the cross was the will of God. To fulfill the Father's will, Jesus had to suffer and he had to die. And he was willing to do that. And we all have our own proverbial cross. We all have the Father's will before us. And to walk in step with it, it's going to cost us. Maybe even our own lives. But if you're a believer, then you must count the treasure of salvation to be so great that you would trade anything in for it, even your own skin and bones. And then lastly here, Jesus tells them to renounce all that they have if you skip further down to verse 33. Um, the first two things that would prohibit you from following Christ are relationships and self. The third and final has to do with possessions, right? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. We're talking about money. We're talking about stuff, right? Material goods. Um, you, you say goodbye to them. You, you take leave of these things. You let them go. So once again, Jesus is being hyperbolic, but the point is serious. He's not saying you need to go sell everything you have, and if you do that, you earn your salvation, right? Instead, what he wants us to see is we own nothing. Everything that we have actually belongs to God. We're just stewards of these things. And if we're simply stewards and we're not owners... And the real owner of these things is the Lord himself, then it should be our joy to surrender to the Lord what belongs to him anyways, if he asks it of us. In just a few months, we'll get to Luke 18, sometime after Christmas. 
and the new year, and we'll meet the rich young ruler there. And if you ever read that text, the man goes away sad because Jesus says to him, surrender your possessions, give the money to the poor. But he goes away sad, Luke says, because he had great wealth. And so what's implied there by Luke is the man's not willing to give it up. He's not willing to surrender his wealth. He's more devoted to the money, and he's more devoted to the possessions, and he's more devoted to the wealth than he is to God. And so he is choosing stuff over following Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you cannot be his disciple and choose stuff over him. Before we knew Christ, these were our priorities. right? Relationships. And, and our selfish desires and, and collecting and acquiring things and having more money because more money means better positions, more power, relationships and self and stuff. These were our priorities because these are the priorities common to the human experience. Like who doesn't value these things? Right? Who, who do you know, especially if they are not believers, who do you know that doesn't value these things? Who doesn't place relationship and self and, and things at the top of their list of concerns? And so here is Jesus saying to the crowd and saying to us this morning that unless we make him our number one concern, even above the things that we count the most important as human beings, then we cannot be his disciple. We've got to let go of our former priorities. For one all-encompassing priority, which is to honor and to glorify the Lord Jesus. That's action point number one. Second action point. You cast off your former priorities. Number two, consider the cost of following. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you have to consider the cost of following Jesus. And we get two illustrations from Jesus to illustrate this, this need for us to count the cost. Number one, you got a man who is building a watchtower, probably to keep watch, um, to see if enemies are, are coming to attack and to steal from him, uh, probably also to store his things. And if he's going to build it, then he's got to sit down and he's got to make sure that he has both the money and the materials to be able to finish the project. Because if he starts the project and he cannot finish the project, it's going to be embarrassing, right? That's what little boys do. Like little boys start projects. They start building things with Legos. They start playing a video game or they start reading a book, right? And, and maybe they don't finish. That's what little boys do. Men finish their projects. And so for him as a man to have this watchtower he started working on that he doesn't finish, that's going to be embarrassing. People are going to mock him over this. Okay, this is a voluntary act. He decided to build a tower and he didn't finish it. He would be mocked for that. So he's got to count the cost before he goes about building it. Second illustration is not so voluntary. In the second illustration, there is a king who has been thrust into a war scenario. Even if he doesn't want to battle another king in war, the circumstances have forced his hand. He's got to go out. He's got to battle or at least come to some agreement, right? Some peace treaty. And so as he's deciding what he's going to do, he's going to stop and he's going to count the cost and he's going to make sure that he can sustain the battle. His opponent, Jesus tells us, has double the men. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose just because you have less people. Maybe he's got better weapons. Maybe he's got better strategy. If he doesn't have those things, though, it would be foolish for him to move forward, right? His army is going to lose. They're doubled up two to one. 
And so he's got to count the cost. Can he win? And if he can't, then you send a delegation out to try to hammer out a peace treaty and avoid any sort of battle, any sort of skirmish. So both of these illustrations, both of these stories, one voluntary, one less voluntarily, uh, they illustrate the same point, and it's this, that Jesus does not want emotionally motivated, fake, temporary followers. He wants settled followers. He wants committed disciples, real, lasting disciples who have sat down and they have weighed out the value of the world in one hand and the cost of following Christ in the other, and they have decided Jesus is worth it. So what does it look like to count the cost of Christianity before you follow Christ? Well, maybe you examine how genuine your repentance is. Like, do you really agree with God about sin? Are you ready to find yourself going against the grain of the world because you've turned your back on the world and you've turned to the Lord in faith and you're walking with his son? Are you ready for that? To be adversarial with the world and its views and its thought processes and what it values? Maybe you think about what your family might say. Like, how are they going to respond if they don't go along with your newfound faith. Maybe you take the time to really consider whether or not you're ready to lay everything on the table and say, Jesus, all of this belongs to you. My relationships, my stuff, my own life. To count the cost is to take those areas of priority that Jesus mentioned, right? And, and to calculate whether or not you're willing to make it all secondary for the prize of knowing Christ Jesus. Third action point, cast off former priorities uh, consider the cost of following. Last action point, if we are to be his disciple, we must commit to loyalty without corruption. And we see this in verses 34 and 35. If we consider relationships, and we consider self, and we consider possessions, and we calculate the cost, and we say, all right, Lord, I will follow you. You, you are worth infinitely more than all of these things. Then we've got to go all in. All in on uncorrupted loyalty to Christ. Look at what Jesus says in these last couple of verses of chapter 14. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, before the glorious invention of refrigerators, which I'm very thankful to have and to live in the age of, um, salt was one of the main substances used for preservation. And the great thing about salt as a preservative is that it rarely degrades. Like, never in my life have I heard anybody put salt on food, taste it, and go, oh, the salt's gone bad, right? Like, salt lasts. That's what it does. You can pretty much always count on salt. However... In the first century, because they were so close to the Dead Sea, sometimes um, salt would have a problem. Salt from the Dead Sea was sometimes contaminated with gypsum, and um, that, that's a, a, salt, um, a soft kind of sulfate uh, mineral, and, and so it would be contaminated with that. And in that case, the salt was corrupted, and it had to be thrown out. It had no real use. You couldn't even use it as a fertilizer. You couldn't even use it in the manure pile. About the only thing it was good for is they would throw it on the footpaths uh, to keep the footpaths free from vegetation. 
But in those circumstances, it was trampled on by the travelers. And so Jesus uses this illustration of salt to show the sort of loyalty that he wants from his disciples. The fruit that real repentance is going to produce. Temporary disciples lose their usefulness. They turn back on Christ. They, they spoil their witness. They go back to valuing relationships and self and possessions over Jesus. If you've been in church for even a short amount of time, you've seen this. People come to church. They get all excited. Um, they want to get baptized. Pastor sits them down. We, we talk, and to the best of our understanding, we see fruit in their lives. We think that they are believers. And then after uh, a few months or maybe even a couple of years, they fall away. And it's not that they lose their salvation. It's that they never had it in the first place. There was some initial excitement, right? But when the temptation to sin came in or when uh, hardship came in, they said, I'm not doing this anymore. I I'm going to cast off Christianity. I'm going to cast off following Jesus. And they turn their back on the faith as I hit my wedding ring on the, uh, the music stand here. Um, they turn their back on the faith, right? They, they walk away. And it breaks your heart to see that. But understand here that Jesus recognizes this happens. That there are people who will lose their usefulness because they were temporary disciples who had never really followed him in the first place. And their return to the world and their return to those former priorities proves that. True disciples of Christ do not lose their usefulness in the world. Now, what that doesn't mean is that a true disciple of Christ is perfect. There, there's times where we struggle. There's times where we do choose those old priorities over Jesus, right? Where we go back to choosing family and self and maybe even stuff over Jesus. But what happens when somebody really knows the Lord is the Spirit of God convicts them and brings them back to the place of loyalty. If, if we were left to our own, our loyalty would always falter. But by God's grace, he restores us and continues to use us. As John MacArthur says, moments of failure, however, do not invalidate the direction of the heart. But there are some who are like a man who build a tower and, and, and they stop after the foundation, right? They're like a king who charges into battle without strategy, without taking stock. And they're like useless salt because it is more than a moment of failure. The direction of their hearts is turned away from God and back to the world. They didn't count the cost. And now they live in defeated shame. And there's still hope for their soul, right? They just need to repent. They need to count the cost and they need to repent. But when they turn their back on Jesus and they go back out into the world, until they repent, they live in defeated shame. Christ doesn't want that for us. Therefore, he calls us to count the cost and to really follow him. And now, I think this passage doesn't just give us three action points, but as I was studying it, I thought, man, this, this brings about the death of three isms that tend to plague the human heart when it comes to faith in Jesus. All right, so here are the isms, okay? Nominalism, consumerism, and pluralism. 
The, these three isms so often are hurdles to true faith. And I want to close this morning by showing you how Jesus' words lay the sword to the neck of each one of these isms. And so first we start with nominalism. This passage is, is calling for the death of nominalism. This is when you're Christian in name only. That's what it means to be a nominal Christian. Christian in name only. John Stott says this, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. Listen to me on this. The Bible flat out gives no option for claiming the name of Jesus without practicing his teachings and obeying his commands. It's just not here. You cannot claim the name of Christ, not practice his teachings, not obey his commands, and still say, I'm a Christian and God is going to set me into his heaven. Biblically, it's just not on the menu. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, he doesn't say, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them, and then just send them about their old way of living, because they're good to go. No, he says, teach them everything that I have commanded you. Why does he say that? Why does he want us to teach a, a new disciple everything that Jesus has commanded us? It's so that they can live under his authority. It's so that they can live under his lordship as he, attends, uh, as he intends. It's so that they can surrender their relationships and surrender their self and surrender their possessions and everything else for the sake of knowing him and following him. One of the worst things we could do for our community is to preach a gospel that does not contain repentance. That does not say, if you are to follow Jesus, then you must obey Jesus. A gospel that demotes the Lord into basically tearing ticket stubs at the gate of heaven. And as long as your ticket says Jesus on it, or Christian on it, you get in, even if you've spent your entire life on your own pleasure and not living for his pleasure. And so this passage takes the option off the table and says, don't think you can get away with a faith like that and that it's going to be honored by the Lord. Because it's not. You lay it all down if you're going to be his disciple. Mother, father, self, the things we own, it's all got to be his. It can't just be lip service. There is no nominalism. It's over. It's done with before it even gets started. This passage kills it. Secondly, this passage brings us the death of consumerism. And, and this is important because the consumer mindset is all around us. Like you go to the grocery store, and if they have a price discrepancy, right, you, you are going to get the lower price. Why? Because the customer is always right. Okay, if you've ever worked retail, uh, you know that, right? The customer is always right. At least they're supposed to be, right? If you go to the grocery store, they're there to serve you. You give money, they give service. This is the way that the world works. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, as I hit it again. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with going out in the world and being a consumer until you bring that mindset into the church, Listen to me, brothers and sisters, and I, this is where I really wish I was there in person to say this to you, but I'm going to say it 
and, and I just hope it gets through the camera lens and, and gets to your hearts this morning. Listen to me. You are not a consumer. In this body of Christ, you are not a consumer. You're a disciple and you're a member, but you are not a consumer. When I go to the store, I go to have my preferences met, right? When, when I turn on the television and I turn on one of the streaming services that I pay for, I turn it on to be entertained, and I expect that their little algorithm is going to throw things up there on the screen that I have interest in and that would entertain me. If at any point there is no entertainment to be found in the streaming service, I'm not going to pay for it anymore as a consumer. Right? And, and when I go to a store, I kind of expect that unless I'm being a total jerk, which I try not to be when I go to stores, right? Unless I'm being a total jerk, that yeah, as a customer, I'm going to be right. But in this body, my preferences are not the number one concern. I don't come here to have my preferences met. You should not come to this church to have your preferences met. You should not look at your relationship to this body as a place where you come to be entertained. And this is not a place where you are always right. We come here to learn. We come here to grow. We come here to fellowship. We come here to serve. We come here to sit under the authority of God's word and learn the ways that we are not right so we can get in step with his will. We come here to die to our preferences. And then we take it out into the world. We take everything that we've learned and, and we take these hearts that have been transformed by God, right? These, these hearts that are, are, are um, shaped and formed by his word, Right? These lives that are living to be disciples of Christ and we take to the world the way that he did. We go on mission as, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, he told his disciples. And so we go out into the world and we want to reach them and we want to preach the gospel to them and we want to take the mission of the king, or the message of the kingdom to them and we want to be on a mission of love as we do it. When the church gets a consumer mindset... They're not going to be thinking, let me grow, let me serve, right? Let me um, gain strength as a follower of Christ um, through the grace of God so that I can go out and reach the world. A consumer mindset is not going to be thinking that way. A consumer mindset is going to be thinking, you know, it's all about me. A church with a consumer mindset, everything's going to be pointing inward. And instead of abandoning ourselves and abandoning our interests, in the name of uncorrupted loyalty, we will want every need met, every itch scratched, in the name of self-centered consumption. And this passage won't have it. Jesus won't have it. Taking up the cross means the death of the consumer in me. It means my life is not about my will, and it's not about my preferences, and it's not about my fulfillment. It's about His will, and it's about His glory. If the cross meant that Jesus served to the point of death, what does it mean for me and you? The world says, consume, consume and live. That's what the world says to us. And here Jesus says, die, die, and then you will live. The last thing that this church needs is for its members to be consumers. And the last thing you need 
as a church member, is to be a consumer. Instead, what this church needs is committed disciples. What you need is to be a committed disciple, willing to abandon your former agenda for an eternal agenda that comes from the heart of the Father and that's all about the glory of the Son. Lastly, we've seen the death of nominalism. We've seen the death of consumerism. This passage gives us the death of pluralism. Pluralism means you hold multiple realities to be true at one time. You know, like, I am most important and God is most important, right? These are, these are competing truths. They both can't be true. Either I'm most important or God is most important, but they can't be true at the same time. But pluralism is when you try to hold those two truths in your mind at the same time and say, I can be most important and God can be most important. And in this passage, Jesus is calling for an end to competing loyalties. There cannot be gypsum in your salt. Your love and devotion to him must take precedence over your adoration of everything else in your life. It's him and him alone. No more pluralism. It's a single-minded pursuit of his glory. And let me tell you what the good news is here. Faith in Christ just brings richness to all the good things that God has given you. You say, well, I, I don't want to give up on marriage and friendships and relationships to follow Jesus. Jesus isn't calling you to do that. He's calling on you to make those things secondary and for him to be the all-encompassing priority of your life. And what happens is when you totally devote yourself to him, it just makes marriage better. When you totally devote yourself to him, it just makes friendships better. When you are completely um, and, and totally bowed down to his will and to his agenda, it just makes your relationships better. It, it, it makes how you look at money better. Because his practical wisdom and the strength of his grace helps things flourish. And they're all better because our eternal reward in him helps us to hold these things less tightly and keeps us from being so anxious when these things are threatened. But the only way it works is if we keep the proper order. And we must. It's the only pathway to true discipleship. Christ is first. Everything else is a distant second. As I close up, one more bit of wisdom from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says in The Cost of Discipleship, there can be no turning back, for Christ bars the way. By calling us, he has cut us off from all immediacy with the things of this world. He wants to be the center. The center. The only immediate one in our lives. And so, I want to challenge you this morning. Have you counted the cost? Have you taken the words of Christ to the neck of the isms like a living sword? Are you his and does all that you have belong to him? He who has ears, let him hear. Right now, Pastor Ben and the worship team are going to start making their way to the platform. And they're going to lead everyone in a song. And what I want to challenge you to do is if you do not know the Lord Jesus to count the cost. And if you need help in doing that, we would love to help you along with it. 
If you want to talk about relationships and stuff and self and how you do feel like these things are getting in the way of an authentic relationship with Christ, man, reach out to us. Contact us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. You can email us there, and you can actually text to that email. If you put that email in, just like a phone number, you can text to it, and we will get back in touch with you. If you want help kind of counting the costs, wading through all of this, thinking more deeply about the high bar that Jesus gives for discipleship, we're here to help you do that. Our pastors are here for you in that. Um, if you want to know Jesus, you're like, I've counted the costs. I'm ready. I want to know him. We would love to talk with you about it. Contact us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. I also want to challenge all of my brothers and sisters in the congregation this morning. What's one thing you're holding on to? I know one idol that I struggle with. One thing that I just want to hold back from Jesus as his disciple is my time. So often I get very protective and defensive about my time. And maybe that's you. And, and I actually want to give you uh, one more action point this morning. I want to challenge you to give up some of your time for the church during this upcoming Advent and Christmas season. We're going to have these Christmas lights that are going to be going every night uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. We have uh, two teams of folks we're going to need out there helping us every night to reach out to our community, to show love to people who do not know the Lord Jesus, people who might be looking for a church home. You have an opportunity to do that. And I know that during the holiday season, we get very protective of our time. Give up a night. Give up two or three nights. And, and say, I am a disciple of Christ. And I will commit everything, including my time. And I will follow him. And so that's just a really easy, practical way for you to apply what we've talked about this morning. I know our Connect team, they're going to be signing people up out in the lobby uh, this morning. And you get the first crack at it because they're not going to go live uh, online. Those sign-ups until tomorrow. So that is a way for you to show your commitment to Christ, to show your commitment to the body of Christ uh, right away coming out of this morning's sermon. So I challenge you to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the calling to discipleship. We thank you that you have not um, left us guessing with anything as it pertains to life and, and salvation and godliness and when it comes to being a disciple, you have told us what it takes. It takes everything. We are to lay all of it down. I pray, Father, that we would hold nothing back. Because your Son is worth it. Your glory is worth it. Eternal reward is worth it. I pray we would count the cost and that we would go all in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.